It's good to be here with you today. I promise we did do a sound check this morning. Uh, some reason it's giving us some feedback. So, um, before we jump into the text uh, this morning, I, I do uh, want to say, you know, if you're watching online, if you're here in attendance with us, thank you for being here. Uh, you know, just pray for our church, you know. Um, it just goes to show that COVID's not let up yet. Um, still dealing with some of that. And uh, just pray for, uh, you know, our church family. Um, so uh, as far as that goes, um, again, uh, just want to step into prayer for a moment. Just ask the Lord to, to bless our word, um, that he would speak to, through me uh, and, and to your hearts and to your lives and to your situations and uh, understanding more about Jesus this morning. So, um, and we long and look forward to Pastor Stephen being back with us uh, hopefully next week. Uh, Father God, just thank you for the opportunity to be here um, amongst your saints, Lord. Amongst the people who, Lord, are here to worship you. Lord, to gain something from this message this morning. To take it out and to be an encouragement to their life, Lord, so that they may be glorify you in the world. Lord, so they may be go out and they share and proclaim the gospel and the good news about you throughout the week. Lord, be with us in song, be with us in word, uh, and may, Lord, you work. Um, Lord, work through me, through the music this morning, and Lord, just speak to each one of us here. Guide us and direct us, and, and may your word be clear and proclaimed today. Uh, in your name, I pray, amen. So, um, got a call about 18 hours ago, right, Mike, I think? So... Just, just bear with me uh, as, I, uh, as I work through this. And uh, what I wanted to do, as you recall, last week we were, uh, as a church, we worked through different books of the Bible. We've been in John for some time now, the Gospel of John. Stepped away from it for a little while, looked at the Holy Spirit and His work. And we had come back to it. And uh, Pastor Stephen had led us into John 17, uh, which, um, if you know much about that chapter, is the high priestly prayer. Jesus goes out to give a prayer among his people and for his people and also for his work and for what ultimately God to be glorified. So what I want to do this morning um, in that context and thinking about that verse, um, I'm going to leave that to Stephen in the weeks to come as he's planned for that. But I wanted to look at a kind of a bird's eye view today, a brief scope of Christ's work in Hebrews. Um, so that's where we're going to land. That's where we're going to be at. We're going to be at several different chapters there is going to be a good bit of reading this morning. I'll go ahead and warn you. Because ultimately what I want to do is let the text speak for itself. Because um, God's word is, is usually really clear. And it paints a wonderful picture of, of who Christ is and what he's accomplished. Uh, so I hope, you know, through that, you're not like, oh, there's a lot of passages being read. But that you're actually listening to them and thinking through them. And ultimately how that it goes back to the text that we're studying in John 17. So, you know, coming off of the introduction into John 17, we begin to see Jesus reveal himself um, to be priests for his people. So if you want to go back and look at that after uh, today, that'd be great. Uh, right around the corner, though, if you remember, ultimately is the cross, right? So he is giving a prayer for himself, for his people, um, asking to be the priest of his people, stating that he is ultimately about to go to a bloody cross to pay for the sins of his people. 
And um, he, he prays for his future bride, the church there. So by taking a glimpse into Hebrews this morning, I hope that you see that Jesus is not only as our priest, but as a fulfillment of redemptive history. So we don't look at it just as this one contextualized idea that Jesus died for us in our sins, but no, this has been God's plan since the beginning of time. Um, it is his plan throughout redemptive history. Um, so... What we see here is not a religious system or God being caught off guard. We don't look back at uh, the Father laying before Moses throughout uh, Exodus or Leviticus, Numbers or Deuteronomy, a religious system that he expected would work. Like when he is giving his law to Moses, it is not in God's mind, oh, this is going to work. Humans are going to be able to please me in this sense, in this way. They're going to be able to please me with their sacrifices, with their offerings. No, in God's mind, he understands and he knows that humans and men are infallible and sinful people. He knows it to be true that the religious system and the structure that he sets forth to Moses throughout those books will not come to bear to be true. So what ends up happening is not a contingency plan. Jesus is not the contingency plan of God. It's not like, oh, God made a mistake. Didn't know that was going to happen. Humans failed me. Going to have to send my son. No, it's been God's plan from the very beginning to send his son. Because this one thing, he knew that humans would not, man could not, and ultimately provide for his own sins. Me and you cannot provide for our own sins. We cannot work hard enough. We cannot suffer hard enough. We cannot do enough. But Christ could. And that is God's point, is that through his son, his perfect son, ultimately it is through him and his sacrifice that he becomes the perfect priest. And what we see working out here is that it becomes a, Hebrews 10.1 tells us that the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system becomes a shadow of things to come. It is pointing us something greater to come, something that cannot be fulfilled by mere mortal men. Um, the system that had been set forth by Moses through God's word to him. So the Old Testament, guess what, is always pointing us to who? To Christ. It's never pointing us to Israel. It is always pointing us to Jesus. He is always the answer. So the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who that is. We can speculate, right? Um, understood that to be true. He understood that to be true. That, that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing us to Jesus, not to anything else that preceded him. Um, whoever the writer was knew his Bible well. Why? Because he understands that theology is important. Now, here's a word that a lot of people don't like to use is theology, really, right? It just means the study of God, the understanding of God, generally through his word. And, and it's interesting if you read Hebrews, right, and, and you're looking and, and the writer's kind of given this idea of Christology, he's painting this picture that Jesus is better than all of these things. And he comes to ultimately chapter 5, the end of it, and chapter 6, and he stops at the end of chapter 5 and he says, you know what? I can't even continue to go on. I can't even continue to explain these things to you because you're stuck on the elementary truths of the scriptures. And then he goes on to tell them the dangers of that is that when you get stuck on the fact that Jesus is enough, then you kind of lose 
out on the possibility of understanding Jesus at a greater depth and understanding. And Jesus is our foundation. It is the beginning point. His sacrifice is. His resurrection is. But the writer of Hebrews is imploring them to explore deeper into the truths of who is Christ. What does his accomplished work mean? And so I think it's important for you to understand as a congregation and people watching is that theology, the understanding of God, of examining the scriptures, of studying, even if we don't all agree on the basic you know, core thing, I mean not core things, but secondary and, and tertiary things, that's okay. I'd much rather have a debate with someone who you know, doesn't understand those things like I do but they have a grasp and understanding of the, of the Word of God, and they love it, and they study it. Uh, so I wanted to kind of point that out there to you just really quickly, uh, because it's important when it comes to the priesthood of Christ this morning. Um, so we see the writer of Hebrews, he's ultimately and constantly hearkening back to the Old Testament. Um, it's over time and time again. He's pulling out Old Testament scriptures. He's showing us that this is who uh, fulfilled that, and that was in the person of Jesus. He tells us that Jesus is better than the angels. If you go to chapter 1, that's what it says. Not only is he better than the angels, that he is the better Moses. He's the better prophet. Not only that, he is the better king. He's the better David. He's ultimately the better Sabbath as well. We find our rest in him. And he's also the better Israel and the better sacrificial system. And where he leads us and begins after he picks up out of verse or chapter 5 into chapter 7. He shows us that he is the better priest. And that goes back to John 17. It's important for us to understand that Jesus is the better priest this morning. The key word is what? Better. He is better than all that preceded him because he is the son of the living God. We need, not, we need to remember the framework of John 17 today. And again, if you, if you haven't been here with us, go back and look at it. In what ways is this true? In what ways is, is Jesus better? So I want you to flip with me. I am going to be, like I said, hovering around Hebrews this morning. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, they should be up on the screen as well. Um, verses 1 through 10. Remember, I'm kind of doing a bird's eye view, just kind of a scope of Hebrews this morning. And I just want you to listen. I want to point out some things as we go. But it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. But of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, and today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's in Genesis 14, by the way. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death and was heard because of his reverence. Harkens back to John 17. This is talking about Jesus here. He offered up prayers and supplications. And goes on to say, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal 
salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So I want to jump in here again. Point number one being the better fulfillment is what Christ is. See, as Christ took on flesh, if we go back to the first chapters of John, we know that Jesus became incarnate in the flesh. He tabernacled among his people. But here, as Christ took on flesh, he was able to perfectly fulfill his priestly duties as he understood the weakness of man. If you see verse 2, if you go back to it, it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And it's talking about the weakness of the flesh. So before him, before him that came, all other priests that came, Jesus came in order to fulfill as the perfect, better priest, as the better fulfillment, knowing that the human line of priestly duties, those who had been called before him, could not perfectly satisfy the duties of that office. And why, though? It says so that he would understand our weakness, the weakness of man. He could relate to our situation. It was the reason that Jesus was taken out into the desert and he was ultimately tried and he went through trials and tribulations for 40 days. He was tempted in the wilderness because he understood what it meant to be a man and understood our weakness. It was needed. It goes on to tell us that God calls those who will act as priests in verse 4. That's important. Because man, in this case, does not determine who becomes the great priest. It is God who has called him to be priest. What does it mean when a writer recites Psalm 110.4, which is the line about Melchizedek here? He says, you will be in the order of Melchizedek. Interesting, David is writing that. I'm talking about a millennia before. He is writing this about the one to come because God has given it to him. Remember that through Aaron's lineage, the Levites were called to be priests, right? If you remember what's set forth in the Old Testament, it's the Levitical priesthood, the Levites out of Aaron's line that will be the priests that will go about all, making offerings, making sacrifices to the Lord. So it was out of a, a lineage that was the case. So Melchizedek preceded that and was before Abraham's descendants. So that's the difference, right? Melchizedek preceded what God had ordained to be the case, which was Aaron's descendants. So Melchizedek was called. He was the first high priest of God. If you remember, Abraham comes to him. He makes offerings and sacrifices, not to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek, as the priest, takes those offerings and sacrifices and offers to the Lord on his behalf. So what we see here is that God had called Melchizedek. Guess what it says of Melchizedek? That he was king of the New Jerusalem. It's an interesting parallel when we see these words and these ideas, these concepts of this man in the Old Testament who would go on to die. Melchizedek was a real person. But after that, we see God's law enacted and put into place that through the lineage of the Levites that God would call. So in the order of here about Christ, comparing him to Melchizedek, reveals that God steps outside of the lineage of the Levitical priesthood and he calls his son. He goes outside of the normal, of the sacrificial system and it says what God has ordained will be true. 
God called his son. Remember, he was from the tribe of Judah, right? He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And he places his priestly duties on his son, Jesus. That's what God has called him to. That's what the passage tells us, that in the line of Melchizedek, meaning not of the line of a lineage, not of the line of DNA, that he came out of this tribe of people. But no, God called him out of the tribe of Judah to be a priest as well. So it goes to the tribe of Judah where the prophet would come from. Jesus is the true prophet. Where the true king would come from. And where he would call his true priest from as well. It says verse 5 here in in chapter 5. Christ himself did not exalt him, but God who said to him. This is what the father said would be the case. That he would be his priest. Verses 8 and 9 tells us that Jesus was perfect in his obedience. Why is it that we had to have a different high priest? Why is it that man could not continue to go on and do this on our behalf? Because if you remember correctly that a priest not only would have to make sacrifices for his people, but he also would have to make sacrifices for himself because they were not perfect. They were sinful human beings. The priests were. So what do we need? We needed someone who was perfect in obedience and that by that he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see that at the end of the chapter there. So by his obedience, he becomes the source of eternal salvation for all of us, for all people. That's how he becomes a better fulfillment. And that it takes us back to verse 3 that Jesus has become the offering for the sins of his people. Jesus didn't give up an offering. He didn't take a lamb. He didn't take a sheep. Or he didn't take any type of livestock in before God and say, well, here it is. I'm acting as your priest. Jesus was also the sacrifice. Jesus became our perfect sacrifice. No other priest before that could do that. Not even Melchizedek. God had called him to be not only perfect, better fulfillment, but also the sacrifice for all his people. Jesus, being the priest, lays his life down. Jesus was perfect through suffering by obedience. We see it. No one else could fulfill what he was called to, which was to be the better priest. So not only is he the better fulfillment, he is the better priest. That's what it guides us into. That's what it helps us understand that the things that preceded him could not accomplish what he accomplished. So I want you to go to chapter 7 with me. Like I said, there's a good bit of reading, but I just want you to hear what the words of God say. I'm going to start in verse uh, 14 through 27. It said, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, going back to Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, 
a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath, oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You hear that word? Forever. This makes Jesus the, the grantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need. Like those high priests to other sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I should just sit there and let that preach itself. I want you to point out some things about this passage, though, and go back to verse 16. What does it say there? It says that he is not of physical descent. It goes back to the idea, right, that Jesus is a better fulfillment. He is outside of what man thought was to come. God stepped into time, and he pulled him out of the tribe of Judah. Verse 19 goes on to tell us, and it calls Jesus a better hope in his role as priest for the law had perfected nothing. You understand that the law was given first and foremost to show us our sin and that it could accomplish nothing in our lives. We can hang up the Ten Commandments every day of our life and we could try to live by those Ten Commandments. We could try to live by the law of the Old Testament. It tells us, the Scriptures do, that it is impossible and it becomes to us a curse. Because it is not something that you or me can do. But who does it say did it? Christ did. He became a better hope as role of priest because he was perfect. For the law had perfected nothing. In and of itself, Jesus perfected the law. Love verse 22. How is he the better priest? Because he is the guarantee. That's what one translation says. He is our guarantee. In verse 24 it says, permanently. Meaning that will never go away. He will never stop interceding on your behalf. You get that? He will never stop interceding on your behalf. He will never go away. He will always permanently, in God's presence, be there interceding on your behalf and mine for all eternity. If that ever ceases to exist, then me and you are doomed for hell. But he will always intercede on our behalf. For he is everlasting. He is permanent. He is our guarantee. He is able to completely save those who come to God through him as he always lives to interceding for them. I hope you find hope in that today. I hope you find assurance in that today. That there is comfort knowing that Christ will always be in heaven acting as your priest. 
because he is your intercessor for all of time. If you look at verse 26 and you say, well, what gives him the right to be a better priest? What, what are his qualifications? It tells you. It says he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinner, and exalted above the heavens. That's what gives him the right to be the high priest. He becomes our high priest in that way because no man could. It's interesting, right? Religion, we all try to do that. We try to act as our own priests. We try to do the right things, to live moral lives. Me and Mike have talked often about this. We have friends from different religious backgrounds, I guess to say. Maybe Muslim, maybe Hindu. Guess what they're all striving for? They're all acting in accordance as their own priests in the sense that, oh, if I do this and I do this and I do this, then guess what? God or my God will be pleased with me. But the scriptures say that is impossible and that only Christ can meet that fulfillment. Verse 27. It says he doesn't need to offer sacrifices daily. So you remember, so... Sacrifices be offered daily to God on behalf of the people. Now the priests would only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year, but they were always offering and making peace offerings and different types of offerings for the people of God. Guilt offerings. The scriptures in verse 27 says, He did this once and for all. Christ from the early morning hours until noon... Listen to this. He was falsely accused. He was convicted, mocked, beaten, mocked again, struggled to carry his cross to Calvary due to the trauma inflicted upon him. And then nailed to a cross, spat upon, mocked and scoffed at some more, all while the wrath of God was poured out on him for me and you. For all who come to believe, that's what he endured for us. As Isaiah prophesied, he was crushed for our iniquities. So for the first time, I want you to think about this. In, in eternal, eternality, maybe that's the word for it. Maybe I just made it up. I'm good at doing that. So in the beginning, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God, always existed. And they will always exist. But for Several dark hours on this day. They were separated. It is the very reason Jesus cries out on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's because the holiness of God cannot endure the sinfulness of man. So when the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus for the sinfulness of man, he cannot endure it before his holiness. And Jesus is abandoned for us. So, for the first time, Jesus was separated from the Father. Mark fifteen thirty four says that, if you want to check it. Sin divides from the Father. The reason that we need reconciliation, that we needed a priest. It is the reason that we needed a high priest who was perfect in every way. Not only to act as the priest, but to become the sacrifice as well.
And that priest was Jesus on the cross. One that filled the place of our sin and God punished him for it. Not because God forced his son to do so. Understand this is not cosmic abuse. God did not say, get down to heaven and take upon all this. Jesus says that he gladly came. That he stepped out of his eternal state with God and become human in the flesh so that he may endure all the wrath that we should have taken. It wasn't because of his sin, but because of ours. I want you to flip over to Mark 15, or it may be, like I said, it's probably up here behind me. 15, 37 through 39. What a great passage. It's right here, right after Jesus has cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then verse 34. They thought he was calling out to Elijah for help. They ran up to him to give him a sponge filled with sour wine. They were still mocking him, thinking that Elijah was going to come down and save him. And it says at that moment in 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed, breathed his last. Meaning the breath went out of him. He was dead. I want you to pay attention to what happens after this because it kind of gets missed, this next verse. And the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. 39 says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now this was written by Mark later about the curtain of the tabernacle was torn in two at that time. But let me ask you, what tore the veil? Do you understand that to go behind that veil prior to this meant death? It was a dangerous thing. Because to go behind there, you were in the Holy of Holies. You were in the midst of God's presence. And you would not be able to sustain His holiness. That is why it was important for a priest, the human priest, to get his life, to repent of his sins, to confess his sins, to bring a sacrifice for himself and for his people. Because so much so, they would tie a rope around his ankle. And if he dropped dead back there, they would have to pull him out. Because they understood it was the holiness of God. You would be right in his presence. And the moment that Jesus breathes his last breath, guess what it does? It tears the veil and it makes a way for all people to go before the presence of God. It gives us that reconciliation. It gives us that ability. That's why Christ is the great high priest. No other could do that. In the moment his breath left him and his life left him, everything was made right. Because his blood made it right for you. And all people have the ability with faith in Christ to go before God the Father now. It's what gives us the right through all eternity. And it's constantly because of that interceding on our behalf. It was what toward the veil? The satisfaction of God's or Christ's pure sacrifice. So, 
Because of that, as the better priest, Jesus enacted a better covenant. So I, I hope you get that and walk out of here today and be like, man, have access to the, the Father because of the great high priest who still lives today, not only as prophet, but as priest and king. And that king is ruling on the throne right now. I think we forget that sometimes. We think that Jesus has forsaken us, but he tells us that he never will, that he permanently will hold to us, that he will never leave us, and that he will always intercede on our behalf. May you believe that today. So as the better priest, Jesus enacted a better covenant. Chapter 8, 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. You see that? The first covenant wasn't perfect. It wasn't going to save anybody. Never was intended to. Because if it was perfect, there would have been never a need for Christ to come. That's what it says there. For he finds fault with them when he says, this is out of Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out from the, <clears throat> them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we see that the first covenant was not perfect. Then we see that he will put his law into our minds and write them on our hearts. That is the promise of the new covenant. And it will be consummated at the coming of Christ. It will be fulfilled at the coming of Christ. But there will be no need. You remember Moses wrote the law on tablets. It says here that he will write it on your heart. Believer today, that's a good way to check yourself. Has God written his law on your heart? Into your minds? That is the new covenant. That is what Jesus has secured for us by becoming the better priest. He has also given us a better covenant. Which would have been impossible had he not been the better priest. And then it says the first becomes obsolete. And it's showing us, it's giving us this picture. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is understanding that there is coming a day when the system, the, the religious system of Israel will come to an end. And we know that that happened in AD 70 when the Romans sacked Israel, destroyed it, and left nothing as Jesus had predicted. Not one stone unturned. And here it is, the writer of Hebrews is writing the same thing. The first will become obsolete. Why? We don't need it any longer. It's not sufficient. Never was. 
So as better priests, Jesus enacted a better covenant. And then through a better covenant, we are called to a godly life. This is our so what. This is our end point. This is the application to us, to understanding. Why is it important to understand theology? Because it has an impact on how we live. When we see Jesus for what he has accomplished, it helps us to love him all the more and love those and show mercy and grace to those around us all the more so that we, too, will live holy and godly lives. You'll flip over to chapter 10 with me, verses 19 through 25. We'll finish here. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... See that? We have confidence by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. There it is. That it is through his flesh. And by his flesh being broken for us, it opened the curtain to God in such a way that it never been before. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is encouragement this writer's given to the church. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we see that Jesus is the better fulfillment. He is the better priest. And by being the better priest, he enacts a better covenant. And then by being a better, through a better covenant, we are called to a godly life. Remember, he has written it on our hearts how we should live. Because who dwells within us? The Spirit of God. He dwells within us. Three things I pulled out of here I want to point out is that we have a full assurance of faith. That goes back to what it was telling us earlier about how Jesus was our permanent answer. He was, he would never go away. He will always be interceding. It's not like there's a time like, you know what, that person, they they messed up too many times. I'm done interceding on their behalf. He doesn't give up on you and me that way. He doesn't give up on those who are genuine in the faith that way have a full assurance, meaning that he is your, what does it say? Guarantor, guarantee. Ephesians tells us the Holy Spirit has sealed us until the day of redemption. So we have a full assurance of faith. Walk out of here knowing that church. Don't be down this week. Don't worry about what the news is telling you. Don't worry about all that's going on in the world, knowing that Christ is your assurance. If you were to pass from this world tomorrow, it would be better for you because Christ waits for you. Second thing that stood out to me was watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. That's what the scriptures say here. That's, that, that's what the better covenant is calling us to. That's what Christ pictured, is, what he did on the cross as high priest is showing us is that which should provoke us to love and do good works for one another. How dare we not be merciful and gracious to one another? And to love one another. 
when Christ has did nothing but that to us sinners. Watch out for one another. Do we watch out for each other? Do we do that very well? We've been studying hospitality here in our small groups. It's a thought. How, how do we think about this as you go out today? How do I watch out for one another better? He tells us to provoke love and good works in one another. How? Well, one, it reflects back on, we, we have to look at the gospel constantly. You'll hear me say that all the time. I always need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. And the final thing here that I saw is, how? How do, how do we provoke love and good works towards one another? It gives us. And if we read the scriptures, it's pretty plain. It says, one, don't stop gathering. Don't, don't stop gathering as some have done. And in the last, well, last 18 months, we've kind of seen that. People pulling away, utilizing this as a, a reason not to meet. And I'm not saying you have to meet in person. I know there's some churches that do it virtually. I, but I believe there's something about coming together and being a body and being in the presence of one another. And, but it says don't quit gathering. Whatever that may look like, don't stop doing it. And there's too many people who say, I don't need the church. I've got Christ. That goes back to a theological issue. You don't understand Christ's sin because you need the church. So don't give up gathering. It says encourage one another. That's another way. So many of y'all have been encouraging to me just today alone. And, and hopefully, you know, as a body, we encourage one another. That's why we gather. If you don't gather, guess what you can't do? You can't encourage one another. You can't edify one another. You can't equip one another. It only happens through the personal relationships that happen within the body. So we gather, we encourage, and it says, and we wait for the day when our priest appears, when our Lord appears. That's our hope. That's, that's why we come together. It's because we're collectively, we had this one idea of nothing else in common. That we're longing for the day that our Savior comes back and returns. And during that meantime, he said, love and do good works. So it's my hope today that as we go back to John 17, hopefully next week, is that you have this picture of what is Jesus as a high priest when he's praying and he's praying to his Father. What is he to become and what he is and this kind of gives you a, a deeper appreciation and understanding of that prayer. So thank you all for today. So let me pray as the worship team comes up. Father, thank you so much for being here with us in your word. Lord, it speaks for itself. It is the truth, God. May we not just hear it today and, and lay it to the side as we walk out this door, this building. But Lord, may we find it to be encouraging to us that we find it to be something that's challenging to us calling us to look back to the cross knowing that you tore the way the entrance into God's very presence by your blood by the shedding of your own flesh God all that you endured for us so that God that we may live and live abundantly in our faith in our assurance Lord, if there's 
there's anyone watching, anyone who's here, I pray that they would know that to be true. I pray that they would put your, their trust in you on that cross, Lord. And not only that, but your kingship as you rose out of that grave that third day. Lord, to give us life eternal so that you may intercede for us on our behalf forever, for all eternity. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your kindness that's shown to us. May we go out and live it accordingly. In your name I pray. Amen.